Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Every Wednesday, we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. Hello to our Good Dog Pod community. I am Dr. Michael Delgado from Good Dog's Health Standards and Research Team. And today I'm really excited to speak with Dr. Bruce Christensen from Cocopelli Assisted Reproductive Services based in Elk Grove, California, where they offer services for both dog and horse owners, as well as a number of amazing online reproductive seminars that are available for purchase and viewing. Dr. Christensen received his veterinary degree at Cornell and completed a residency in theriogenology at the University of Florida, eventually becoming board certified by the American College of Theriogenologists. He worked in Florida, Australia, and Iowa before becoming a faculty member at the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Christensen now has his private practice at Cocopelli. He has written many book chapters, peer-reviewed scientific publications, and lay articles on reproduction, including editing a textbook all about canine reproduction. Dr. Christensen, thank you so much for being here with us today on the Good Dog Pod. It's a pleasure. So when you started in veterinary school, did you envision yourself working in theriogenology? Like, how did you get to where you are today? So like many veterinarians, I pictured myself as a veterinarian from a very, very young age. My mom would say before I could speak, I was headed in that direction because my first words were animal sounds. But at that point and all through my childhood, when I pictured myself as a veterinarian, I pictured myself as a zoo veterinarian taking care of all the animals in the zoo. And I actually continued heading in that direction all the way up through college. In my undergrad, I studied wildlife conservation biology with an eye toward potentially using that in vet school. And then when I got into vet school, I continued to head in that direction by taking the extra courses for exotic species and zoo species. But I would say the seeds of theriogenology were planted probably in undergrad when I was thinking about conservation and where that might fit in my veterinary career. And again, returning to zoo medicine, my thoughts were thinking that I could help with captive breeding programs for species that were endangered. And so that's where the first seeds were planted as far as thinking about reproduction medicine being a part of my career. And then when I got to vet school and I was taking the classes for the different body systems, When we got to the section on theriogenology, on reproduction and fertility, that really clicked with me. And I know it sounds a bit cliche, but just the whole miracle of life part of it, the idea that two individuals, a male and a female, come together and they create by donating a piece of each of them, a completely autonomous being that then is off and running by itself, just how that goes from a two separate cells to a zygote and then on to be this complex individual is amazing. And when you get into the details, it doesn't become any less amazing. So that really grabbed me. And getting into zoo medicine is quite difficult. It's very competitive. So even though I tried hard and I felt like I had a strong resume for applying for residency positions in zoo medicine, I was trying to be realistic and think that perhaps I wouldn't get one and maybe not the first year I'd have to become a little more qualified and have more on my resume before I got one. So I began to think, well, maybe as a plan B, I'll do theriogenology if I don't get into a zoo medicine program. 
But as I was applying for residency programs, both theriogenology and zoo medicine, I ended up interviewing for positions, both zoo and therio, at the University of Florida. I was at the time an intern in New Jersey at a private practice, so I flew down to Florida. And when I visited those programs, I really loved the zoo program. That wasn't a surprise. They have a very strong program there. But what was a surprise was how much I liked the Therio program. Everything just really clicked when I met the mentors and talked to them about their program. And it was one of those really fortunate situations that you fall into in life where everything changes because it feels like this is where you're supposed to be. And that was very unexpected for me, but they were excited about me too. They were excited about my interest in exotic and wild species. Mm -hmm. We actually had started a partnership with White Oak Conservation Center just that year, which is a big conservation center in Northern Florida. And they were interested in having somebody from their program work actively with them and perhaps do a master's program. So I loved it. I loved that idea and changed my complete plan of attack. And when I left Florida and submitted my rankings for the match program for residency programs, I ranked the Therio residency at Florida as my number one pick. And thankfully for me, they liked me too, and they ranked me up high and we matched. So then I went into Therio and I did do a master's in reproductive physiology while I was at the University of Florida doing my residency in theriogenology. And that project was at White Oak Conservation Center and we looked at testosterone concentrations in captive male rhinoceros. We got samples from all over zoos throughout North America and it was a really good project. And that got my foot in the door for working with zoos and I've managed to keep that opportunity open through the rest of my career. And I've done many different projects at different zoos. And so at that point, you were not working with dogs or horses, it sounds like, or at least not. Oh, no, I was. Oh, you were. Okay. I was totally working with dogs and horses. My research project was with the rhinoceros. Okay. But that was just the research component of my training. Most of my training was clinical. And in the clinics, it was horses and dogs, almost okay. exclusively. Sometimes we'd see farm animals and occasionally we'd get a really interesting one. Like we had an elephant dystocia down at Disney once that they called us in for. And we had a manatee dystocia that the Fish and Wildlife Service called us in to help with. And SeaWorld came in and helped with that. So occasionally we'd get a really interesting species like that. But probably 70% of what I did was horses and 30% of what I did was dogs in my residency. Okay, cool. And then you at some point, left the East Coast to come to California and settled into your private practice. So I know at UC Davis, you kind of revamped their reproductive services that they offered, especially for, it sounds like, for horses and dogs again. So apparently those two species need a lot of assistance compared to some of the other ones. Yeah, they do. And some of it is because of infertility and subfertility issues, but a lot of it is just because those species are often breeding, the males and females are in different places, either in geography or in time, because sometimes we're dealing with dead individuals. And so right. we've frozen semen that we're using. And sometimes we're just dealing with a male and a female that are in different states. And so we need, we're shipping semen. And sometimes we're shipping embryos. And so there's all different kinds of management things that happen with dogs and horses that a person like me can be helpful Okay, great. So tell us a little bit about Cocopelli Assisted Reproductive Services. Like, how did you end up deciding to dedicate a practice to reproductive services 
And I'd love if you could explain to our listeners how you came up with the name Cocopelli. Sure. So first of all, I was a professor at UC Davis for five years. When I joined the faculty there, I had fully intended on staying there until I retired. I wasn't planning on going back into private practice. I'd been in private practice for a short time before becoming a faculty member at Iowa State University, and I enjoyed that. But once I jumped into academia, I thought I'd stay there until I retired. I thought I'd build up a legacy program at UC Davis, but the politics were very difficult. And that's a long story, but things weren't what I had expected and I wasn't happy there. And so I decided that uh, it was more than what I felt good about doing every day. And with some regret, I did leave. And my other choices really, just to be transparent and honest, were private practice was really it because my family lives here. And my kids are in school here and their mom's not interested in leaving California. And so I'm here with them. <laughs> You're stuck. Well, There's worse places to be stuck. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I didn't have much of a choice but to go into private practice and start a practice. So that's not a very romantic answer, but that's exactly the reason why I did it. And as far as why to do a reproductive practice, there are really kind of two parts to that. One is that that's what I do. And so that's what I'm good at. And that's what I'm uniquely qualified to do. Mm -hmm. And secondly, fortunately for me, there really wasn't any strong competition for my services in the area. I was really the only veterinarian who was focusing on reproduction and was board certified in reproductive services. There were some general practitioners who were offering reproductive services but nobody who is specially trained and board certified and can do some of the things that I do. And there were a couple practitioners in the Bay Area that were board certified in internal medicine that had a really strong interest in reproduction. And one of those was Autumn Davidson. And then she had just retired and moved south. And so that left a hole. And the other is Janice Kane. She's still offering those services and does a very good job over in the Bay Area. But that's it. There was nobody in the Sacramento area and only really Janice Kane in the Bay Area. So there was a big demand for these services. And when I, actually, even before I left UC Davis, they stopped offering small animal services there. So there really was just no competition. So it was a field that was ready to harvest. So that's why I went into private practice. The name Cocopelli, I lived in Arizona when I was in junior high. And had a lot of Native American friends and got to know that culture. My dad actually worked for the Indian Health Service as a pharmacist. And so I got to know a little bit of the Native American stories and mythologies. And Cocopelli is a Native American god of fertility for many of the Southwestern tribes, even into California, not quite Northern California, but Mm -hmm. there are some Cocopelli pictograms and petroglyphs located in California. So he's the native god of fertility for Native American tribes in this area, just south of us. And he is kind of a funny character. He's hunchback. He's got long kind of locks of hair and plays a flute. And when he visits an area playing his flute, he brings fertility to everything, to the crops, to the people, to the animals. And so we chose that name for our business because we are in the business of bringing fertility to our patients. Yeah, I looked it up because I was like, what does that name mean? And so I love the story. Who are your clientele? So you're based in the Sacramento area. Do you work only with local breeders? And I know you offer services for, again, dogs and horses. But yeah, tell us a little bit about who you're servicing. 
Sure. So me personally, I work with dogs and horses in my clinical work. And I have a colleague, Dr. Alyssa Shelby, who works with us in Cocopelli. And she also does dogs and horses, but she also loves working with the farm animals. So between the two of us, we do cover the spectrum. So she sees goats, sheep, pigs, cattle, as well as the horses and dogs. We don't see many cats, and that's because cats are actually pretty good at breeding (laughs) themselves and don't really need our help. And also, they're quite easy to transport for those people that are breeding purebred cats. They can easily stick them in a little carrier and transport them back and forth, or they can maintain a colony themselves quite nicely. So they don't have quite the needs logistically that the other species do. So yeah, my clients are usually dog and horse breeders. As far as the dog breeders go, they usually are hobbyist breeders. They just become crazy interested in their breed. It's their hobby. It's their passion. Just like most of us will develop some kind of a hobby that we get a little bit crazy about. I'm a bird watcher and I definitely have done some pretty crazy things to get out and just see a a little brown bird that I haven't seen before, haven't seen recently, (laughs) that people who aren't birders don't really understand why I would waste my time doing that or spend so much effort doing that. And I have an uncle who's a fly fisherman and I don't understand all the stuff he does, but man, he's really into it. So, you know, we all kind of relate to a hobby that we just get into. And these breeders mostly they're people that for whatever reason, that breed has really grabbed them. Mm -hmm. And so they've started focusing on that breed and it becomes a part of who they identify themselves as. And they mostly, I would say by far are really conscientious because they love the breed so much of wanting to do the best they can in creating healthy, good animals. And most of them by far are not expecting that this is going to be a cash cow for them. In fact, if you look at their budget sheets at the end of the year, most of them will be spending more than they're getting by selling the puppies because they spend all their extra money on dog paraphernalia and registrations and and veterinary bills and and travel to the dog shows and paying handlers to handle their dogs and entrance fees. And, you know, they're just, it's whatever they can do for their hobby because they love it. So those are my clients. Mostly they're people who are breeding for like AKC confirmation or agility or some kind of AKC competition show type dogs. And they're coming to me either because they're having difficulties with their program or just because the dog or female they want to breed to is somewhere else and they need me to manage their side of it. They need me to either manage the female and tell them when semen needs to be shipped or when the dog needs to be brought up or they're managing the male and they just need me to collect the semen and ship it off to wherever the female is when she's in her fertile window. I do have hunters that are my clients that have sport dogs that help them with their hunting program and they also breed. And I do have a portion of clients that are breeding animals that are not really AKC, they're just pet animals. And again, these are people that are in love with their breed and they may not be showing the dogs, but they love breeding them and providing pets. My services aren't cheap. And we don't try to make them expensive. We try to make them what they should be. But certainly these people could be doing it through a less expensive way. And so when they come to me, I think I can say with 
without exception, these are not people that are like puppy mill kind of people waiting to just churn out the dogs because my bills would make that. <laughs> but not not really. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think with any specialist, it is a different kind of service. There's a reason you go to a specialist and you're board certified. And like you said, people are looking for a particular, and I think, you know, certainly, you know, a lot of what you said, I think will resonate with our breeder community. Breeders are always looking for veterinarians who also understand the breeding experience and good communication. That's always something that I think we're trying to educate people and bring breeders and veterinarians together. So I think that's great. And you mentioned, you know, a lot of management of semen, collecting semen, shipping semen. So since you've done a fair amount of research, so I did a little research on the work you did and you've been doing throughout your academic career and beyond. So I thought it might be kind of fun to focus on a few of those, what you've learned through some of your research. And also how that can maybe help some of our breeders who have questions about things like artificial insemination or when they should be thinking about using storing, shipping semen, expanding their gene pool, that sort of thing. So, yeah, my first question is really like, why or when should a breeder consider using storing semen from their dog? Well, so frozen semen storage, which is what you're talking about, clients should consider doing that in my opinion, as soon as they have a strong feeling that the male dog that they're working with is a dog that's worth breeding. First of all, for insurance purposes, if anything should happen unexpected to that dog, and of course we hope that it won't, and most of the time it doesn't, and they live perfectly normal, healthy, uneventful, as far as health goes, lives, but not always. And you don't know if your dog's going to be one that has a tragic turn of events whether it's health-wise in general or just fertility-wise. So if you have a male that you think is worth breeding, it's worth putting a few breeding doses on ice or in liquid nitrogen, really, to make sure that if anything were to happen, you've at least got that shot at getting one or two litters from him later. And then on top of that, if it turns out, man, he really is a dog that's worth breeding and there's going to be some demand, whether it's in your own breeding program or from others that want to get semen from him, and you think that demand's going to last potentially for a while or beyond what he may be able to produce while he's up and healthy, then having more doses frozen will preserve that genetic potential from him forever. Essentially, we've bred and gotten litters from dogs that had semen frozen 30 plus years ago. Wow. So it just sits in that liquid nitrogen until you thaw it, and it can still be very fertile and produce nice litters. That's amazing. So obviously, we're not talking about like vials in your freezer next to your ice cream. No, these are liquid <laughs> nitrogen. But yeah, liquid nitrogen, it has to be kept submerged in these tanks filled with liquid nitrogen. If it comes out of the liquid nitrogen, it thaws very quickly and then it's damaged if you don't use it right away. Okay. In that case, people need to seek out a specialized service with someone that has a semen bank or similar, right? So they would come to you or another veterinarian who offers this kind of service and you store the semen for them indefinitely or... Yeah, indefinitely and until they either want to use it with us or if the female is somewhere else and they want to have the semen shipped, we can do that. We have special shippers that keep that temperature down at liquid nitrogen levels and we can ship it anywhere in the world, really. Wow. Where's the most remote location you can think of that you've sent semen to? We've sent semen to Europe a number of times and we work with a service out of Utah called Sires on Ice and they're based out of Australia and they ship all around the world. So we generally ship the semen to them and they can ship it anywhere on the planet. Okay. 
so like the semen storage is really for the breeder. It's not kind of like a free for all. Like, is there like a matchmaking service for people or is it really just done breeder to breeder? They make the arrangements and then you're just storing and shipping for them. No, to my knowledge, that's one thing that yet there isn't an app for that. So, (laughs) So it is really up to the client who owns the female to decide what male, wherever he may be that they want to breed to. And then they contact the owner of the male or if that male's dead or not fertile anymore and has frozen semen, then the owner of the semen, and then they negotiate with them what the price of the dose of semen is and have it shipped to them. Okay. But these people know most of the time, if they're at that level where they're breeding with frozen semen, they know who's out there. Or if they don't, they know who knows. Okay. (laughs) They can find out pretty easily themselves as to who they want to breed to. So we occasionally get people calling us, asking us for help finding, but that's rare. Okay the breeders know who they want to go to and they just come to us to facilitate things. Gotcha. When I was prepping for this interview, you know, reading a lot of different articles, like, okay, there's frozen semen. So you kind of address that needs very specialized conditions. There are some cases where people might use fresh or chilled semen, like maybe they're doing it at home or maybe coming to your service. So I, I know you provide transcervical AI and surgical. So maybe can you kind of parse out like when you would use each and when you would not? Sure. So the three kinds of semen that can be used are frozen, chilled, and fresh. So fresh is where it's an ejaculate that we get and immediately within a short time, within an hour, usually we're using it. And that would be under certainly a live breeding situation where we're not actually doing it. The dogs are just doing it the way dogs do it. That's the most direct way of fresh. But we also do a number of breedings called side-by-side AIs, which means that we collect the semen from the male And the female's right there. Often she's in the same room acting as like a teaser stimulus for for the semen collection. And then we take that sperm and we do an artificial insemination of the female. And the reason why we might do that instead of just having them breed naturally, which would seem to be the obvious thing to do, sometimes we want to be able to look at the sample and make sure that it's good. But more times it's because the male and the female can't get the job done themselves. They tried, doesn't work. And that could be for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's because that particular breed has just been bred to where they have a tough, like English bulldogs is what mm-hmm. I'm thinking. Of. Okay. They're so front heavy the way they've been bred that they just can't. It's, it's like our Thanksgiving and Christmas turkeys. You know, all of them are artificially inseminated because we've created this animal that's so heavy with breast muscle that it can't breed. And in the case of English bulldogs, they're also front heavy. And so they have a hard time with that. Okay. That's an extreme example, but there are also sometimes just behavioral things too. Like the female is giving mixed signals. She seems receptive, but then she's got aggressive tendencies toward the male. And maybe she's a guard dog and she doesn't know this male. And so the threat of a strange dog is overriding her instincts to breed. And sometimes the female might have a stricture, like a vaginal stricture that doesn't allow natural breeding. Okay. So there are lots of reasons why a natural breeding might not work. And that's why we would collect semen and then just turn it around right there. And a few minutes later, do an artificial insemination. With chilled semen, it's just one step further where in that case, it's because the male and the female are geographically separate. Okay. So we collect semen from the male. We mix it with a special extender that helps to buffer it and keep it safe and nourished. It's got sugars in it for a period of time while we stick it in a container that has ice blocks in it to cool it down, not freeze it, but just cool it down to where it's like refrigerator temperatures and ship it overnight just through FedEx to wherever in 
the United States that it needs to go, or we can get it to Canada that way as well, or Mexico. So those close areas, we can get things overnight shipped. And then the female owners and the vet who's helping them will receive the semen the next day and do the artificial insemination there. Okay. There's a lot of planning involved because you've got to get the timing right. Yeah. There's a lot of planning involved with the female. You've got to time her using serum progesterone levels and we use vaginal cytology and vaginoscopy, different tools that we can use to help us know where she's at in her cycle and when she's ovulating so that then we can let the people who are managing the mail know when to ship, or if we're managing the mail, people on the other end are doing that and letting us know when to ship the semen. And then frozen semen, we've discussed already why somebody might use that. It's typically used when the fresher chilled isn't available anymore. Because fresh and chilled have a better fertility rate than frozen does. So if you have a good dose, which often doesn't happen with frozen, we receive it and it's not as good as what the paperwork says. But if you do have as good a dose as what it's supposed to be, you can expect somewhere around probably 70% pregnancy rates as long as you don't have fertility issues mm-hmm. with frozen semen. And with fresh or chilled, you'd expect well over 90%, 90-95%. So there is a drop in fertility with frozen semen. Okay. And I think this is a perfect segue into talking about semen analysis. Like when would someone consider, like, when do you have to take a closer look at what's going on on that end? You know, what can it tell you? Well, we always do a semen analysis anytime we collect a male, even if it's for routine purposes, like a side-by-side breeding or a chilled shipment, or if we're freezing semen, it always gets analyzed thoroughly each time. So that's one reason for doing it. Anytime we're handling the semen, we want to know exactly the quality of it at the time that we're handling it or receiving it. If somebody ships us semen, We'll look at it. We don't just put it blindly into the female. So we want to know how good or bad the quality of the semen is that we're using to breed that female. And when we thaw semen, we always look at it to see how good the quality is post-thaw. So those are reasons. And then in addition to that, we commonly get clients bringing us male dogs they either are intending to use and maybe they've never been used for breeding before. So before they go through all that effort that we just briefly touched on to time the female and figure out when she's ready and then find out that the male may not be fertile. Right. They want to know ahead of time. And then if he's not, they've got time to look for an alternative male to breed with. So they don't find out the day of that. Oh my gosh, this one's not going to work. So that's one. And then another would be if the male has been used and hasn't been getting females pregnant, then they'll bring the male to us to say, what's going on? Can you help us figure out what's wrong here. Okay. And is there kind of a threshold where you say "Mm, this quality is not good enough, find another dog? Yes. Where we make generalities, but we always say that the only true measure of fertility is producing puppies. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So there certainly are some males that have lower counts of sperm or lower motility percentages that still actually produce puppies quite well because it's enough what they produce. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are some that seem to have a relatively good quality when you're just looking under the microscope, but there may be something wrong that you don't see easily under the microscope. You would need some kind of special evaluation like a DNA stain if the DNA strands are not staying too stranded and are separating, for example, that happens rarely. And you wouldn't see that under the microscope because the sperm would look normal. They're still swimming and everything, but they wouldn't be able to fertilize an egg. So the only true measure is heat producing puppies when used with a fertile female and a well-timed breeding. And if so, there should be very good fertility. Okay, cool. 
You've done some really interesting work with wolves. I read one of your papers you published, specifically with the Mexican wolf, which is an endangered wolf subspecies. They have a very limited founder base, kind of like some of the breeds of dogs that people are breeding or working with. But can you speak to how the skills that you use with your dog breeders kind of translate to conservation efforts? You kind of touched on this when you talked about your journey and kind of thinking that was where you're going to start. But obviously, you were able to do some of that work through your research. So maybe just tell us a little bit about that research and what you found. Yeah, like I said, I got my foot in the door early and kept my foot in the door. And I've done work here and there for zoos with different fertility questions about their captive breeding programs. And the wolf work started when I was a faculty member in Iowa at a conference. I met with a researcher named Dr. Cheryl Asa, who was at the time the head of the research department at the St. Louis Zoo. And I'd known about her. I'd read some of her work before. So she gave a talk and I went to that. And then afterwards, I went up and chatted with her. And as fortune and fate would have it, things fell into place quite nicely because she was based in Missouri and I was in Iowa. And so if you can think of your U.S. geography, that's one state right on top of another. And right above us was Minnesota. And in Minnesota, she had a bunch of research projects going on with a conservation park there that focused on carnivores, specifically wolves. They had lots of wolves. And that gave her an opportunity to use them as research animals. So her work, she was a reproductive physiologist, was focused on reproduction fertility also. So it seemed like a very natural pairing that I, with my clinical skills, could help them with some of their research projects. And that's how it started was working with these just generic gray timber wolves. But she already had had a long history herself working with the Mexican gray wolf species survival plan program in zoos and with the Fish and Wildlife Service. So that's how I started working with them. She had been freezing semen from Mexican gray wolves for quite a long time already since then, over a decade. And they hadn't really used the frozen semen for breeding yet. They'd done artificial inseminations using fresh or chilled and had some limited success. So that's what we started working on. We looked at different extenders. We looked at different ways of freezing. We looked at different methods of timing. And we still are. We're still working on that. These are all active programs. We're still trying to fine tune that and figure it out and also deal with the fact that the drugs that are available to us are changing. Sometimes quite often, actually, drugs that we've come to use go off the market and we have to pivot and find something else that we can use it's a pretty complicated situation because wolves are seasonal breeders. They only breed in the very late winter, early spring. So late January through February is often when wolves are breeding and you can't work with them outside the breeding season. You can't collect semen because the males don't produce semen outside the breeding season. Their testicles pretty much shut down. They get very poor ejaculates if they're not in the breeding season. And we've got basically one shot each year with an artificial insemination on an intended female. And it's useful because some of the males are gone. And so we've just got frozen semen. It's also very useful because, and this happens a lot, wolves in general, they're monogamous and they form very strong bonds, male and female. And there's only one pair that breeds in a pack, the alpha pair. And so if you've got an alpha pair in captivity and you look at the genetics, you're like, well, they've been producing puppies quite well, so they're overrepresented, or perhaps the male or the female is overrepresented, but the other one isn't, and they want to pair them because just genetically they work better. As you mentioned, there was a bottleneck, and so there were limited founders. There's a founder effect definitely in this species group, so 
genetic pairing and inbreeding coefficients are really important in deciding who's recommended to breed with whom, but they don't want to go breaking up the relationship. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. I mean, that's really real. That's really real. Yeah. These wolves really bond with each other and it's not given that you're just going to throw them in with somebody else and they're going to bond with that other wolf. And so the keepers and the people working with these animals, especially respect that. And they don't want to break that up if not absolutely necessary. So that's where we can come in because they can just separate the male and female in adjacent pens, the chain link fence between them. So they can still see and smell and lick each other, but they just can't breed. And then artificially inseminate the female. And then once she's past her fertile period, they can let them back in together again. And of course the male's none the wiser. He doesn't realize that the pups that are born two months later, are not his. And then you get what you want. So that's in a nutshell, in a big nutshell. That's how I come in to help with this is that I help brainstorm and work on the timing and I physically can go and help with the actual artificial and transcervical inseminations that we do on these animals. Wow, that's really cool. And then if it doesn't happen in January, you got to wait another year. Yeah. And this is a very fluid population between captive and wild. There are wild populations in New Mexico, Arizona, and Mexico. And some of the animals from captivity are released into the wild populations to supplement them. So the Fish and Wildlife Service is very involved in this program as well in the planning side of it. Great. Thanks. Super interesting. What bit of advice would you give members of our breeder community who might be struggling with getting their dogs pregnant? Well, I would say the first thing always to consider is, did you do a good breeding management on the times that you've missed? Because about three out of four cases of perceived subfertility or infertility the male and the female are perfectly fertile. It's just the timing and the breeding method was off. Okay. So if you focus on that and make sure you've done that correctly and you still miss, then there are things that you can do to try to figure out where the problem is and address that. So we see clients for this all the time. And if there's not an obvious other reason, we always start with saying, okay, next time we're going to do a very good breeding management And most of the time that fixes it. And when it doesn't, we move on to things like biopsies and blood tests and those types of things. Cool. What's one of your favorite things about your job? Well, I love my clients. Like I said, sometimes people, when they talk about breeders, they get that eye roll and they say, oh, breeders, they're crazy. And it's like I said at the beginning of this interview, we're all a little bit crazy about something that we're passionate about. And I think if you understand that, that these people just love whatever breed it is they're working with. Seems true of horse breeders. They just love whatever breed they're working with. And if you can appreciate that, then you can see the beauty in that. And it's fun working with somebody who's so passionate and in love with not just their personal dog, but that breed in general. And they know a lot about it. So I really like working with them because I learn a lot about the different breeds as I talk to my clients So I love my clients and the dogs. I guess I would say this too, because I've worked in general practice and I would say pretty confidently that there's a much better behaved population of dogs from the breeders than from the general population. They work so much hands-on with their dogs all the time. Their dogs are used to being touched. They're used to being worked with. And I have much less 
incidents of misbehaving dogs, biting dogs with the population. (laughs) So these dogs are almost always a real delight to work with. And I love creating life or at least being a tool in the creation of life. That's just always a miracle. And it's so much fun to see the absolute joy that it brings to the clients too. You know, there's, as a general practitioner, a few cases a day, you might bring joy to people, but most of the time you're just trying to help them mitigate a crisis or dealing with routine stuff like anal gland expression or vaccinations or something like that that doesn't bring joy. It's just a necessary thing of having a dog. But in my case, creating these beautiful litters, I have happy clients quite often every day. So that's a real joy in my job. Sounds like a good job. Yep. Okay, well, we like to end with a fun question about dogs. So what's one thing you'd like to know about dogs? Maybe like an unanswered question out there, if you could like devote time to researching or think someone else should, you know, investigate, like, what do you want to know about dogs? Well, in my line of work, I am really impressed with the amount of work that's going into figuring out the very specific issues with each breed, and especially thinking about disease predilections. Mm -hmm. And with some breeds, we're getting quite good at that. And expectedly, they're the ones like golden retrievers and Labradors that are very popular. But I'll tell you what I would love is I'd love to have that kind of information for some of the less common breeds. And that's going to take some time. But I frequently have less common breeds come in and they're asking for advice on should I breed my dog had this condition And all we can do is guess and say, well, we don't know if it's genetic. We don't know the the details about that because it's such an uncommon breed. So that's what I'd love to see in the future is that we figure out more and more of these mysteries as to what things are genetic and how we can avoid them so we can get healthier and healthier puppies in each of the different breeds. Right. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us here at the Good Dog Pod today. Before we wrap up, where can people find you online or learn about your practice? Let us know where people can look you up. That's pretty easy. Just the name of the practice is Cocopelli Assisted Reproductive Services. So use your favorite search engine. <laughs> use your favorite search engine and you'll find us. We're located in the Sacramento area. And we have an active website and Facebook and Instagram and all that. So it's easy to follow us. We'll try to put a link to Cocopelli somewhere in our promotion of this podcast. So thanks again for your time. It's been great speaking with you. I know our community is going to be really excited to learn from you. And hopefully we'll have you back in the future. It's a pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. Mm -hmm. 